Welcome to the IH Podcast, where we profile fellows of the Institute for the Arts and Humanities here at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. I'm Philip Hollingsworth, coordinator for faculty programs. In this episode, I speak with English professors Jordan Jack and Jane Threlkill on their research in the burgeoning field of health humanities. They also talk about their role in directing the Hive and the innovative research projects that students, faculty, and clinicians have developed in this lab. How would you define the health humanities? Well, you probably know that health humanities up until about 18 months ago would have across the board been called medical humanities. And the idea is that it's a kind of, it's a, it's a mingling of the health sciences with the text tools, critical techniques of, of the humanistic disciplines. It's shifted to health humanities. Partly, it's as if we want to emphasize a kinship with the public humanities, first of all, that this is a kind of disciplinary marriage that has amazing effects, real-world effects, in medical practice, in how our students think about their career choices, in the ways in which the sciences and the humanities fertilize each other in the real world. And I think the other thing is that we recognize that health fields go beyond medicine as well. So Mm -hmm. there's, you know, here at UNC we have a range of we have public health, we have social uh, work, social work, nutrition, nursing, nursing, and all of these fields are also interested in ways that they can integrate what they're doing with the kinds of things that we think about. So it's not just the School of Medicine. What interested you in this field and how did the two of you get together to collaborate on this project? Well, I think Jane and I both have academic trajectories where we've always had an interest in science and health and have been looking for ways to integrate that with our interest in the the humanities. So for me, my recent research has been about autism and the public discourse surrounding autism, and that got me thinking more and more about discourses of health in general. So to get really autobiographical, I was pre-med in college, and I was in the bio lab doing my pre-med thing. To some extent, for me, I looked around me, and I looked at the kind of person at that point in time who was pre-med, and there was an intense focus, instrumentality. There was this sort of jacked-up emphasis on professional ambition. And intellectually, I found that my peers and the people I thought who were doing the most interesting work were in my English classes, my philosophy classes, and so on. So at that moment, I swerved away from the health sciences into the humanities because it was a felt choice. But that was the 1980s. And at this point, whether you talk to doctors, whether you talk to patients, whether you talk to people um, who are trying to figure out the economics of our healthcare system, there is a felt need for a way of thinking about these big questions, the things that pull you into the hospital, whether it's childbirth, whether it's cancer, There's a sense that biomedicine, that organic chemistry, doesn't have all the answers. So that's where the humanities can step in, that we have sort of the the conceptual tools to talk about excruciating, important experiences. When I was 20, it felt like there was a choice to be made, health sciences or kind of humanistic study. And the health humanities are saying, 
absolutely not. We need this kind of cross-fertilization. And how does the hive fit into that cross-fertilization? We have a new master's program called, uh, it's a concentration in English in literature, medicine, and culture. And I was asked first to be the associate director, and then Jane came on as the director the next year. And that's really when we started thinking about how can we make the master's degree a crucible in which we can bring together in a really concrete way what it means to do health humanities. And pretty early on, we realized that it wasn't just about bringing a few master's students in and having them go around and take courses, which is you know, part of doing a master's degree, but that we wanted to give them a hands-on experience. And then we have all these amazing undergraduate students here who are really interested in this area. And there was no way for them to really feel part of, um, again, a kind of a space where they can explore health research, health humanities research. So we started collaborating on a project, and that quickly led to two projects, and we've been getting undergraduates and graduate students involved in both of those. And the Hive is really a place where you can come and work on those projects, where students come and do their own work, they're reading for their classes, where they meet each other and mingle and talk about school-related things, but other things as well. And it's really one of the only places on campus where people tell us that it's a safe space for them to have those kinds of interactions, especially with not just other undergraduates or other graduate students, but undergraduates, graduate students, faculty, clinicians, um, clinicians all meeting together in a space like this. So we think the hive metaphor, it's cute, but it, it also adequately describes what really goes on. What's on the horizon? So we are really excited right now. We put together a proposal on an idea that we've been percolating for mm -hmm. some time. And we were delighted that through an internal competition at UNC, our proposal, among many, was selected to go forward to the Mellon Foundation to be funded as something called a Sawyer Seminar. And the Sawyer Seminar is a very particular branch of Mellon funding in which, essentially, they give a grant so that you, for one year, for one incredibly rich and focused year, can run a mini research center. The topic that we are hoping to work on can be consolidated under the title Longevity and Meaning. So our concept is that a purely biomedical approach to aging is going to be all about remediation, fixing. Just this notion that what medicine can do for us today is ward off aging. Resist, resist, resist. Fix, fix, fix. The only problem with that, and there, there, to me, if we could fix aging, of course, I'd be the first to sign on. The problem is, as of yet, death still exists and mortality looms, and the body does break down. So we have to figure out how to live with aging. And from a humanities perspective, of course, aging, later years, long life, is so much richer than simply a problem. Here's what's cool. Historically speaking, we are aging, we are living longer than ever before in human history. In the U.S., I think most people aspire to 80, to 90. We acknowledge this differs across class and populations and 
it's inflected by so many social factors, whether one gets to live a long life. That's a piece of it. So we're thinking to ourselves, we have extra decades that have not existed for human beings in the past. What are we going to do with them? What if we think of these decades as a resource? Why don't we embrace this amazing thing, which is that we, if we're lucky, we get to get old. You know, you asked, what are the health humanities? Yeah. Um, and, and in a sense, what, what are the boundaries of this as a discipline? Now, the first thing to say, or, or the last thing to say, is that it is interdisciplinary. But the kinds of things that researchers and students in our program can do mm-hmm. is to reach across disciplines to understand the societal and the cultural context that shape definitions of health and disease. Students that come out of our program are really good at analyzing the relations of power and the Mm -hmm. institutional formations that undergird healthcare systems and practices. And we can bring also an ethical approach and really explore the ethical implications of macro developments in biotechnology and global health, but also the micro practices of care, the kinds of choices the medical students, the nursing students, um, face on a really daily basis. I read this book called Brave New Words by Elizabeth Ammons, I believe. Yeah, yeah. And she pushes for this idea of, she calls it postmodern fundamentalism, where that we study all these things like ambiguity and extreme critique and sometimes cynicism towards in the humanities, with especially with literature. She's an English professor. But then you stop there, and so she's pushing for this idea of, okay, well, we need to incorporate in our classes more public engagement. Your work kind of reminds me of her, that book and this idea of not just staying within the classroom or siloed, as you say, but looking more holistically at education and what someone can do. Well, I'm thinking about our writing diabetes study, and we've been able to read some of the writing so far that people have produced. And at the same time as we embrace ambiguity and multiplicity of meanings, and there is an incredible richness in their writing and a lot of different ways that you can read some of the things that they say. At the same time, there is uh, a way that you can also see for the people who are actually doing this writing that meaning exists that they can find some way of expressing their experience. And there's a limit to that constant cycle of cynicism and critique mm-hmm. and questioning when the rubber meets the road and it's about someone's life and what it's like to deal with a chronic illness and to try to integrate testing your blood sugar every day with caring for children and trying to juggle that with work and dealing with family who might not be supportive. One of the things that the public humanities does is it kind of asks us to think back on some of the things that we value and maybe sometimes fetishize in our own research and think a little bit more kind of practically about what language means for people in real life situations. So I think the studies that we're doing kind of push back on our work in a way too so it's not just that we're applying what we do to understanding other people's problems but we're learning a lot the clinicians who've read our narratives are learning a lot about their patients and about their view of the the experiences that they have with their providers there's a real world kind of pragmatic aspect to it as well even though we bring our humanities lens and our understanding of multiplicity and narrative and ambiguity to what we're reading as well There's a way in which, so there's a term, right, that we're probably familiar with. Oh, that's just academic. 
that's that that question is just academic it doesn't have salience it doesn't have purchase on the real world in this quality enhancement plan which is looking at undergraduate science education one thing that they're looking at is this model of you go into chemistry lab you pour this fluid into that test tube you get the precipitate you don't get the precipitate whatever you walk out the door and you literally pour the fruits of the experiment into a waste container. So there's a way in which a certain version of education takes away the salience. You care because you want it to work and you want to have the lab write up easier and you want to get a good grade. But that's a very instrumental kind of caring. It's a very small version of care, caring about something. William James talked about certain kinds, the great American philosopher, he talked about certain kinds of questions that were either live or dead. And for our students, sometimes the questions we're asking them are just dead. They'll do the exercise, but they will not care. They'll recite the poem, but they will not care. What we want to do is activate questions that are really alive. So we have an aging study. We are interviewing older adults about their experience with falling. It turns out falling is this hugely significant predictor of whether or not an older person can live independently, whether or not mm. an older person can live a healthy life without dementia and cognitive decline. So when we send our students to interview the older adults as part of this study, and the older adults tell the younger students, frankly, about this experience of falling. And the students write up the narrative that the older adults give them. And then the students look back over this story about tripping, about cracking their head, about going into a hospital, about missing weeks of their lives because of delirium. Suddenly, the students are reading these texts and because they care really deeply. It's just thrilling for our students to find that the work they're doing in their Shakespeare or their Milton class or their class with Emily Dickinson helps them to really look deeply into the narratives that these older adults are producing for the kinds of metaphors they use. Do they use passive or active voice? What does that say about the older adults' feeling of agency and, and efficacy in the world? Mm -hmm. What kind of humor do they use? How does feeling emerge or not emerge? So it's Jordan uses the metaphor, the rubber meeting the road, and it's applying the wisdom from the classroom. I just want to thank you both for speaking with us today, and um, I just appreciate the time. Thank so. you. Thank you. This has been lovely. Check back at ieh.unc.edu for the latest news on our fellows and upcoming events at Hyde Hall. You can find all our episodes of the podcast on our website as well as iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Please like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at IH underscore UNC.